The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Turn there, if you would, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. When I was in high school, long, long, long time ago, I lived within just a few miles of one of the top Wesleyan Methodist universities. The school was the Asbury Theological Seminary that was named after Francis Asbury, who was a horseback circuit-riding preacher in the early uh, 19th century, and he has been called the architect of of American Methodism. And I'm not sure if you know very much about Methodist and what they believe in the difference between them and Baptist, but in those very early days when Francis Asbury lived, there was quite a few differences between Baptist and Methodist. The, the uh, Wesleyan Methodists especially, they were very highly Arminian and they of course lived among many of the Calvinistic Baptists of that time. And among the differences between the two was the doctrine of the perseverance and the preservation of believers in Christ. The, the Methodists, especially Wesleyan Methodists, believe that salvation can be lost, that a believer can fall from the grace of God and be eternally lost. But as you know, as Baptists, we believe that salvation can never be lost. And since our salvation is in Jesus Christ alone, and salvation has been granted to us by God's grace, it is God's grace that is sufficient to keep us in our salvation forever, so that salvation that is begun in grace is an eternal promise for the future. That there is no such thing as a conditional salvation that's based upon our performance. Well, the Baptist doctrine of perseverance and preservation is sometimes reduced to a little catchphrase of once saved, always saved. That, that saying doesn't really capture the full meaning of what we believe, but nonetheless, it's often used and I, I think confusingly applied at times. And so while I was in high school, I had uh, several friends that uh, their parents were professors at the Wesleyan Methodist Seminary, and I had many other Methodist friends as well because that university was very influential for people living in that area. And I'm not sure that if you know this about me, but I like to argue. And uh, I love to argue the Bible. Some people discuss the Bible. I don't stop at discussing the Bible. I like to argue the Bible. So if I have a, a vice, that might be it. I must win the argument. And back in those days, we, we discussed religion in school. I'm not sure that you're even able to do that now, but as high school students, we discussed religion. And because my friend's parents were Methodist seminary professors, our, our arguments would almost always go straight for this doctrine of once saved, always saved. Can we be saved after, or can we be lost rather, after we're saved? And how can we be sure of our salvation if at any time we might lose it? Over the years, I've found that there are many Baptists that use that little phrase, once saved, always saved, as a crutch. 
That is, they're never concerned about what they do. They're not concerned about how they live their lives because they think that no matter what they do, they're saved and they could never be lost. And I can tell you that was the main argument of the Methodists against the doctrine. And they would say, well, if you can never be lost, then you'll do everything that you're big enough to do. That you will live in sin because you know that salvation can't be taken away from you. And so they base their arguments in performance while we base our arguments in grace. But I think there is a, a big misunderstanding of grace on the part of the Methodist and also on the part of the Baptist who rests his salvation in a decision that he made at some time rather than on the evidence that that decision was genuine. A changed heart, a redeemed, regenerated heart does not want to sin. We're not going to live in sin because we have a new nature that's given to us in regeneration and we're going to live out of that new nature. We always seek to live that way. Now, I'm not going to dwell too much on, on that part today. I will give you a little bit more on the point later in the next week's sermons. We'll deal with this uh, some more. But sadly and wrongly, there are some Baptists that teach that there is no requirement for perseverance. Oh, yes, they do believe that we are eternally secure, but there is no requirement for a believer to continue living in the grace of God. And that's almost as bad as the Methodists, even though the doctrine of the security of salvation of both groups, the Methodists and the Baptists, are at opposite ends of the pole. The truth is, yes, God does have requirements. That not only are we required, or are we preserved rather, but we are required to persevere. And true believers will persevere in the faith. Though sometimes we stumble, sometimes we fall, and though we may enter into sin, the saving grace of God is always in us, and the Holy Spirit living in us causes us to persevere. Always the people of God are going to show some good fruits of their salvation. We see this in Philippians 2.13, where the Apostle Paul said, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. That verse is part of the grounding of our assurance. Is God working in us to do his good pleasure? And if a person continues to live in sin, the answer to that is no. But going back to this little ditty of once saved, always saved, many Baptist people dwell on that last part and that part only. Always saved. And they love to examine the last part of that. And they'll preach on the last part of that, always saved. But the Bible tells us that we ought to be more concerned about the first part of that. Have you been once saved? Are you truly a believer in Jesus Christ? The Bible says that we ought to examine our faith to see if we're saved. 1 Corinthians, or rather 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know you not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except ye be reprobates. So that last part of once saved, always saved, has no meaning unless the first part is true. Have you been saved? Have you been once saved? Now our study today is about assurance. You can't be sure of your salvation unless you have been once saved. So do you know that you're saved? And I believe every professed believer in Christ ought to be concerned with this. Is there evidence that you are saved? How would you prove 
that you're saved. How could you look at your own life and say, because I live this way or do this thing, because I believe this thing, I know that I'm saved. How can you know for sure what's happened in your heart, if anything at all has happened in your heart? You better be sure that your salvation is real, because there is no change after this life. If you leave this life and your profession is not real, then there will never be another opportunity to change it. All opportunities are over, so be sure that you are saved and not deceived. Well, thankfully, the scriptures give us ways to know. There are markers, there are proofs that tell us that we're saved. So we're going to read our verses today, and we're going to continue with our study of proofs of your salvation. If you'll look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 4, Knowing, brethren beloved, your election of God... For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, for from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad, so that we need not to speak anything. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. If you want to put a subtitle under the message, you could title it Apostolic Assurance. This is the Apostle's encouragement of the Thessalonian church that he had examined the proofs of their salvation and he was convinced they were true believers. And he tells them what he saw so that they could check it out for themselves and then they would have confidence in their salvation. Now, because they were living in persecution, they began to wonder, is persecution a sign that we're not true believers? Was the faith that they had sufficient? Did they lack something that caused their suffering and it God abandoned them because of it? Well, Paul's observations of, of what they did are good for us. In times of discouragement, we need to know the same proofs that we can hold on to that tell us that we are where God wants us to be. Twenty centuries have passed since this was written, and the proofs haven't changed. They're the same through all the centuries. Always we're going to look to the Word of God and look to our own lives to see, do they match up to what God says, and do we have proof that we are believers? Well, we've covered three of these proofs already, and I'm just going to barely mention them again. The first of them is in verse number 4, where Paul says that they were chosen by God. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. And that first point is more proved by what follows. So what we have here actually is a conclusion that comes up front rather than at the end. If they have the following proofs that he mentioned, that shows that they were elected, that they had been chosen by God to salvation. And that election is proved by verses 5 through 10. But let me say that the doctrine is important because if they understand that they were chosen to believe and to be in heaven, that forms the most solid foundation of their faith they can have. 
They know that their salvation is anchored in the eternal purposes of God. That God chose them before the foundation of the world. James tells us in Acts 15 that all the works of God are known from the beginning of the world. And so what God decides to do, God always fulfills. His determinations are always fulfilled. So those that are chosen in eternity past must be in heaven in eternity future. Now we also understand that in the election to salvation that sanctification must follow that. We've read it in first, uh, rather in Ephesians chapter 4. And then also if you want to turn just a page or two over in this letter to chapter 3, Paul says the same. There is going to be sanctification. That's in the third chapter in verse 13. To the end, he may establish your hearts. So this is the purpose, that God is going to do this. He will establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. There he's speaking of your sanctification. They were chosen to become holy before God and holy until they saw the return of Christ. So that excludes any thought that salvation would not produce a holy people. This is what God intends for us in our salvation. Now the second proof of their salvation was they heard the truth. Paul knew they were saved, they were elect, because the message that he preached to them and they heard was the truth. And no one is saved without the truth. In Galatians 1... He said, there is a false gospel. There is a gospel that some preach. And he said, if you believe that gospel, you will be cursed. It's a false gospel. You're not to believe it. John wrote in 1 John that there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world so that everybody who claims that they're preaching the word of God is not preaching the word of God. There are many false teachers and thus there are many false professors because they haven't believed the truth. So if anyone tells you that acts of faith are the means by which you are saved, if they tell you, oh, you must be baptized and then you can be saved, that is not the gospel of Christ. Or if they tell you that you must attend the Mass, or you must confess your sins in the ear of the priest, or you have to go through any number of rituals, that person is not teaching the gospel of Christ. And belief in that will condemn you. It won't help you. It will curse you, not save you. Well, Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He taught the truth. He saw what the truth did to them. But he also saw what the truth did to him. And this is what he's talking about in verse number 5. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in much power and in the Holy Ghost. So when Paul preached to them, he felt the surge of the Holy Spirit in him. And he knew that the Holy Spirit was working. He could see that and he felt it in his own soul that it was working. And so Paul preached. He was convinced. They believed the Holy Spirit had convicted their hearts with the truth. Then thirdly, they believed the word. You see, it's not enough just to hear the truth. You also must believe the truth. What if someone asks you, where do you go to church? And you say, well, you know, I, I attend that church over there on the corner of Country Club Drive and Ronan Park Expressway. And I'll run across many people that say, well, I know that church. I know which one you're talking about, the one that sits on the corner. And someone would ask you, so why do you go to that church, Berean Baptist Church? 
And you say, well, they, they say that they preach the truth, that they're teaching the truth. Well, do you believe that it's the truth? Not yet. Not yet. Makes no sense, does it? What good does anything we have to say help you if you don't believe it? Now, since faith is given by God, those who are moved by God profess their faith. That is, when they hear the truth, God moves them to believe that truth. And that belief is the evidence of their election. The Bible says the elect must obtain their salvation. And they do that through the belief of the truth. Well, we're ready now to move on to the fourth proof of profession. And the Apostle Paul gives it to, it in, to us in verse number 6. And that is, they became imitators of Paul. Their fourth proof is they became imitators of Paul. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And ye became followers of us. Followers is from the same word that we get mime. A mime is an imitator. To be a Christian is to be an imitator. It's to be like Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, or 11 verse 1, Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. He, you see, Paul lived like Christ. And so when they followed him, they were following Christ. Wouldn't it be great to have that kind of testimony? That you could say to people, If you will just do what I do, and if you will live the way that I live, then you know that you're following Christ. There are few people that are that good of an example. Very few are that good of an example. But Paul was. Following Christ means to live after his example. Now we can take the scriptures and we can read what Jesus did. And you'll often hear people ask the question, what would Jesus do? And we can read the scriptures and we can find out what Jesus did, how he lived. And we see it on the written page. But I would say that most people do much better if they have a living, breathing example. Not to say that Christ is not living and breathing, because he certainly is. But we like to see people that we can model our lives after. Whether that's a good Sunday school teacher, whether that's a good pastor, a good deacon, whoever it might be. People that serve as a good example for us help to build our faith. And we can imitate them and live like them. We say, what does that mean to live the Christian life? How does God work in you? What does God do for you? And you can see how they live, that they're great examples, and they're just very godly people. And that's a wonderful testimony to have. Following Christ can be following them, because they're living according to Jesus Christ. This helps you to understand why Paul says in verse number 5, you know what manner of men we were. You know what we were like when we were there, how we lived. Why? Why was that so important? Well, he puts it right here. He says, it's for your sake. It's for your sake that we live this way. That's to give you a good example to live by. And so the example of Paul and Silas and Timothy was one of self-denial. One of giving up everything to preach the gospel of Christ. To give up everything for their good. You go on and you read about Paul's life and what he endured because... He wanted people to know the truth at any cost. He endured all things he said that the elect would obtain their salvation. 
when he wrote to Timothy, he said, I endure for the elect. And you know what was happening to Paul right at the moment that he wrote that? He was waiting for the executioner. Because he preached the gospel, he was going to be put to death. But he was willing to give his life for them. And this is what he says. This is for your sake. And you can see in verse number 6 of our text that they imitated Paul in that too. That they received the word in much affliction and with joy of the Holy Spirit. Paul's example was to suffer for the gospel. And because they believed, they were also willing to suffer for the gospel. The affliction never stopped them. No matter how bad it got, they weren't stopped. And folks, if anything is going to stop a false professor, it's suffering. If they're told, well, your suffering will end if you'll just renounce Jesus Christ, most of them will give up their profession. Occasionally, you might run across somebody who is so self-deceived that it made a difference what you did to them, they would still go on believing a lie. But usually, a fake who knows he is a fake, one who has a false profession, when he knows that believing what he believes will cause him death, he'll give that up and he'll run away from it. John said, false professors will show themselves. They'll not stay with the people of God. Soon, the world will draw them out. The world will show what they are and who they are, and they're not going to live by the faith. And so this is one of the things we need to be aware of. Did you make a profession of faith, but the world has such a grip on you that you're more with them than you are with us? then you can't say that you're an imitator of Christ. You're a pretender. The text here exposes the true and the false. Well, another observation on the text is the paradox of the Christian faith. People living in affliction can be people with much joy. That's a paradox. How is that possible? How can you have joy in affliction? Sometimes it's God who sends the affliction. When you sin against God, the Holy Spirit can make you miserable. But doesn't the word say that if you are a child of God, that that chastisement will yield the peaceable fruits of righteousness? And doesn't it say that if you're without chastisement, that if you don't receive that affliction from God, then you're not truly a child of God. If you can live in sin and God doesn't chastise, then you're not one of his children. So chastisement even brings with it assurance. And that assurance becomes your joy and not grief. But then there's the affliction that comes from without. There's the affliction of those who hate God. The people in the world who hate God. Paul experienced it just a few miles up the road from Thessalonica. There he and Silas were beaten at Philippi and thrown into jail. And what did they do in their affliction? Bible says they sang songs at midnight. And they weren't singing, Woe is me. This wasn't a country music song they were singing. Oh, they were singing, How great is our God. That's a paradox, isn't it? But that's also a mark of true belief. And nobody but a real child of God understands that paradox and is willing to live in that paradox. Paul saw Thessalonians in affliction. And so he said, they must be the chosen of God. They're standing up to it. And this is so important. 
Because Paul tells them, you are the children of God because your experience with the gospel is the same as ours. We believed and it changed us. And you believed and it changed you. We believed and it brought us much pain of suffering. And you believed and it brought you much pain and suffering. We endured and we stayed in the faith despite that. And you endured and you've stayed in the faith despite that. So you are imitators of the gospel. You are imitators because the gospel did the same in you as it did in us. And he, he reasons from that. You must be the elect of God. You must be believers in Jesus Christ. Because only believers will do this. You know what they say. If it walks like a duck... If it quacks like a duck, if it looks like a duck, it must be a duck. And so Paul said, you walk, you talk, and you look like Christians. So you must be Christians. And this is what a Christian is. He is a carbon copy of Christ. And we are to be imitators of Christ. And also we learn from this, that we are to be imitators of the ministers of Christ. As far as they model Christ in their lives and their teachings. Paul did. So we had no problem telling the Thessalonians, follow me. And to the Corinthians, follow me as I follow Christ. And if they did, they could do the same things in Christ that Paul would do because the Holy Spirit dwells in them. So they imitated him right down to the affliction they endured. In Philippians 1, Paul said, for unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which he saw in me and now here to be in me. Now they were confused, as I said a moment ago. Suffering, they thought, is a sign. It's a sign that something is wrong. We may not be saved. But Paul said, no, the conflict is the same in you as it is in me. And if I am the elect of God and I'm suffering for Christ, that must be a sign that I've been appointed to it. God led me into it. And so there's not a more reassuring verse than we find in Philippians 1.29. Whenever we're in trouble, whenever we have pain and suffering, whenever the world is against us, we learn from Philippians 1.29 that God has appointed it to be so. It goes with the territory. If you are a believer, you're going to get this. Not only does he say God chose us to believe, that's what he says, it is given in behalf of Christ not only to believe, he says you're going to suffer too. Anybody who lives the faith will suffer for it. Some have greater suffering than others, but it will happen to all at some point. Either it's going to be family, it'll be your work, it'll be in school, it might be false friends, folks, it might even be people in your church. You will go through suffering. All of the apostles had a common experience. Peter said, Yet if any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on his behalf. That transitions, transitions us into the next point. I would like us to go down to verse number 9 to see it. For they themselves show of us what mannering of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Proof number five 
is their lives were changed. What is the mark of a true believer? Their lives are changed. The Holy Spirit lives in them and changes them. Now, a few days ago, I received an email from a young man who wanted to come to our church and wanted a candidate to be a missionary. And I received letters like his almost daily. Usually, I, I check them out to see what church the uh, missionary came from, so I understand where are they theologically. Well, this man was from a church in Georgia, so I went on uh, the church website to see, well, can I find a statement of faith there? Can I see what, what they believe? And so I was perusing the different pages on the website, and I came across a page that said they had experienced many days in which there were 100 souls, more than 100 souls that were won to Christ in a day. And I read that, and I said, that, that, that's quite impressive. Many days, many days, where more than 100 people were won to Christ. And I thought, well, you know, that's, that's pretty impressive because that surpasses Paul in most of his efforts. And then I, then I also noticed that the attendance of the church after about four years was about 300 people. And I, and, I, and I wondered, well, if they had many days where there are a hundred people that are one to Christ, or more than a hundred, then there must have been some days or many days that there were 75, maybe 50, maybe 25 or one. And so by my calculations, if only 25 on 20 days, that would be more than five, that would be 500 people in attendance. Does that make sense to you? That's what you should see. And uh, so I thought, well, if they saw... More than a hundred one on many days, then we might expect to see thousands in attendance. Where are those people? How, how are you going to count their professions as real if these are people that never turn from their idols to serve the living God? There has to be some proof of that. You see, Paul would never count any noses without the proof. Isn't that what we're outlining in the message? This is how you know that you're saved. That's the very point here, isn't it? This is how you know. You've got evidence. You've got proof of it. There must be a demonstration of changed lives. And we also find that not coincidentally, those nose counters almost always reject lordship salvation. Lordship salvation teaches that one who is saved or can't be saved unless he receives Christ as Savior and also as Lord. That means Lord. Lord means that he rules the person's life. Christ rules the life. And if he doesn't, and if this person shows no fruit of the one who is the captain of his soul, then he's not saved. Now we notice here, again, Paul said, they turned from their idols. They turned away from their idols. Now, the, these are people that serve real, physical idols. I, I'm talking about things they made with their hands. Statues of wood and stone. You read in, um, you read in Acts about, about uh, in Ephesus where they made the silversmiths, made idols of the goddess Diana and idols of the temple. Sometimes they would wear the idols around their neck. Sometimes they put their little gods in their pocket. Some of them put them on the dash of their chariot. And we still see people with those today. They've got an idol in the car. They've got a crucifix around their neck. They've got one hanging from the little rosary beads. But most people don't have physical idols. Most don't. I mean, they don't have a statue of some sort. But they have idols. They still have idols. An idol is anything that you put in front of God. 
I'm sure that your family is wonderful, but if you put your family in front of God, then they are your idol. Your job might be great, but if you put your job before God, that's an idol. Sports and recreation and the arts, they're all good, but if they come before God, they're idols. Your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, all of your desires, those may be inspiring things, but if you put them before God, they are idols. Now look again at verse number 9. What is the proof of their salvation? You turn from your idols and you serve the living and true God. And so if your idols have taken over your life and your idols are ruling your life and you never gave up your idols, how would you ever believe that you're saved? Paul would say, oh, you're the elect of God, but I still see you're worshiping all your dead idols. Those two things don't go together. So you see why we should be critical of conversions when converts are invisible when it comes time for church. There has to be something wrong with the claim. If converts are not different afterwards than they were before, then there isn't anything that happened to them. Now look at the phrasing again. You turned from idols to serve what? The living, the living and true God. You serve the living God. This is another way of what Paul said to the Corinthian church. When he talked with them, he said, your idols are dumb. Oh, he meant they can't hear, they, they don't speak, they have no power, they don't move. Jeremiah gave a nice compact speech on the foolishness of idols in Jeremiah 10. Just, just take your Bible there and turn to the Old Testament, to the prophet Jeremiah. And he speaks of the insanity of worshiping something as your God that you made with your own hands, which we would say today would be the same thing as setting something up in your mind as an idol. The Bible provides our best illustrations for sermon points. So Jeremiah has something to say. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse number 1. He said, Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen, and be not dismayed at the signs of heaven. For the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe, they deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails, with hammers, that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born, because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. He says, you make an idol. You cut down a tree. You carve it out. You put gold and silver on it to decorate it. Then you pick it up and you carry it over and you set it on a pedestal. It can't pick up itself and so you've got to do it. You take it over there, you set it up, you nail it down so that it doesn't move and doesn't fall over. And then you bow to it. And then you pray to it. It doesn't speak, it doesn't move. But that's the God you worship. Now interestingly... Most people that worshipped idols were cruel. They were bloodthirsty. They were immoral. Exceedingly perverse. Just read the Old Testament about the people who worshipped all of these idols. Read about the Roman culture and all of the people that worshipped these idols. Did it change them? 
Did it make them different from what they were before? No. So what better is a Christianity that doesn't change anybody? What better is a Christianity than worshiping a false idol if it doesn't do anything for you? If it hasn't made you different than you were before. You see what I mean? Why would we want missionaries that did more than what Paul claimed? Why would we want them to say, hey, look at all the converts we've got. We've got hundreds of converts, but they're still serving dumb idols. Where's the proof they changed? Christ is the Lord of those he saves. Now, I think that I could illustrate this from personal experience. I'm not going to give all the details because I like scriptures better than stories, my stories. About 12 years ago, I was in an auto accident about a half mile from my home. Now, you know they say most accidents happen within five miles of your home, which just happens to be where I spend most of my time, within five miles of my home. Sort of like saying most meals are eaten within five miles of your home. Uh, True statement, of course. But I had this accident, and it wasn't my fault. Now, before the police arrived, the fellow that hit my car, we both got out, we exchanged some information. We were standing in the middle of the street. We were exchanging insurance information, and he gave me his driver's license number. And I noticed when he opened his wallet that next to his license was a very colorful picture of the Virgin Mary. And there were brilliant light rays that were emanating from her head. Uh, When the police arrived, the police separated us and took our separate statements separately. The man who hit me spoke Spanish. He never spoke to me in English. And you know the extent of my Spanish is taco and enchilada, but he never used those words in our conversation. And so I, I had no idea what he was talking about. But I looked him in the eye, and I thought we had reached an understanding. Yes, he was at fault. Obviously, he was at fault. Well, the policeman took our statements, and uh, things were different when I saw the police report. That came back a few days later. The man claimed that I pulled out in front of him, when the truth was he made an illegal U-turn in the middle of the road, and he hit me. Now, since our stories were different, and the policeman had no witnesses, he said, well, I can't tell which of you is at fault, and so he wrote this in his report. And so you understand that, that... Not finding fault means I would have to pay for my car, the deductible and all that. So I complained about that. That wasn't the truth. Later, the CHP officer came back and after I had complained, and he went to some of the houses along the street, and he began to interview people. And sure enough, he found someone who knew what happened. And this person told the officer the truth. And then the officer went back and he changed the report. And when he did, the other fellow wrote a complaint In perfect English, of course, uh, about what had happened. Now, this is my point in all of that. What did that picture, the idol that that man carried, what did his belief in the Virgin Mary do for him? Did it make him honest? Did it change him? You know, I thought, surely. I mean, this was my impression. I thought, surely. I see, I see the picture, and I thought, surely the purity of the Virgin Mary, the one he prays to for help, surely that's rubbed off on him in some way. He'll tell the truth. But it didn't. Why? Because the Virgin Mary is an idol. The picture is an idol. Mary's not God. Believing in Mary's not going to change anybody. So long story short, if your belief is in God and it didn't make a change in you, then you believe in a different God than I believe in. You don't trust the same God that I trust. 
My God changes people. And certainly he would cause people to be honest. They would tell the truth. And so if you claim to believe in my God, in Jesus Christ, and you're not changed, then you don't really know my God. So all these people, a hundred saved in a day, if they don't go to church and they don't worship with the church, they've not turned from their idols. Whether it's their family, whether it's their school, whether it's their pleasures, the question is, have you turned from your idols? That's one of the proofs. The Thessalonians convinced Paul they were believers because they left their idols behind. Have you forsaken your idols? What is that thing in your life that keeps you from serving God? Now here's another consideration. Do you find yourself defending your idols? I mean that thing that you put above the living God, that should be able to defend itself, shouldn't it? Shouldn't it? I mean it should be self-evident that if it's better than God, that it doesn't need any defense. And yet, you have Christians who say, Oh, I do this because. And I do this because. It's because. And, and, and you know there's no good defense because something that you put above God should be self-evident. It must be a good thing. And so your good Christian fellows in the church, surely they can see that it's good without question, shouldn't they? They shouldn't ask any questions about it. Oh, but if you're wrong about that thing, then you've got to sweat bullets to make it sound right. And you hear all the chatter that's going around. You hear all that. And you know that God says it's a bad choice. Well, here's the difference between false and true professors. The saved, the redeemed by the blood of Christ have new insight. The Holy Spirit makes them recognize that God must be worshipped and glorified above all. And I'm not saying that all of us do it. Certainly we don't. We don't all do it, but folks, if we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, we know what is right. We know what's right. And we have to make an excuse because we know it's right. We've got to have a reason that we do it. Well, that puts you in the category here of how do I prove I'm a true believer? And you're letting down on the proofs. You're letting down on the proofs. The idol can't take God's place, and if you let it, it's not right. If you are once saved, your life will change to the glory of God. And if you resist God and you keep trying to shove that idol above God, you'll be miserable. The Holy Spirit will not let you be happy with that. You can't live that way and you can't walk away from it fresh and clean and smelling like a daisy. You can't do it. Well, we're not done with this subject. I'm, I'm out of time. The false profession is such a big problem in churches. And this doctrine of once saved, always saved is such a worn out crutch for many that I think we do need to talk some more about it. So next week, I want to come back and we're going to expand on this point. And we're going to consider some proofs that you may not be saved. Am I trying to ruin your assurance? Yes. If that's a false assurance, it's healthy to examine our faith. That's what Paul said we should do. And if we cling to this once saved, always saved doctrine by camping on the second part of it, and we've never shown that we were once saved, we only feed into that Methodist objection to the doctrine. That's bad. But, it's worse, but what's worse is to be self-deceived. Is it possible that you can show no signs of being a Christian and yet have confidence that you are? And let me say, going to church, going to church, that's not a sign you're saved. Now, if you're saved, 
you should go to church. I, I think saved people ought to be in church. But if you don't go, you're here, so who am I talking to? Well, I don't know. Um, maybe somebody that's listening on a podcast or something. If you don't like church, you don't like to go, there's a big problem. But being in church is not a sure sign. As I said last week, there are millions of people that go to church and they are self-satisfied. They are self-sanctified. They feel fine, but they don't know Christ. And we need to look at that. So at least do this between now and next week. Identify your idols. What is it that keeps you from serving God? What do you do that you need to make excuses for? What are those things that you will not give up for Christ? And then I'm going to ask you, which gives you a greater assurance? Living for the dead idol or living for the living God? Where will you get your assurance? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you thanking you for your word and what we learned from it today. Lord, I do pray that you would speak to your people and that they would find proofs of their salvation. When asked, those proofs are there, and they have confidence in that, and we know that the only way that we can is if we are living every day as an imitator of Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to look at the life of Christ and say, that is the way that I want to live, because I have been saved by His blood. I will glorify Him with my life. Speak to hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.